So um, a true story, I was sitting in my house and a doorbell rang. I went down to see who it was. And there was this guy I'd never seen before. And uh, so I opened the door to talk to him. He said one thing to me. He said, use a pig. And I said, what? And he said, use a pig. And I said, excuse me, are you asking me if I've lost a pig? And he nodded his head. <laughs> and I said, well, wait, let me check. Honey, have we lost a pig recently? <laughs> and I laughed and I said, no, we haven't lost a pig because we don't have a pig to lose. And he said, well, and we have a situation here. And I said, tell me, tell me about it. His name was John Stolzfus, and he uh, resided down the hill from where I live uh, in Lancaster, southern Lancaster County. And he, yeah, he had had a pig wander onto his property that he didn't know. So he had, was going around to all his Amish neighbors to ask whose pig it was, and nobody fessed up. Nobody said, you know, they had lost the pig. So here he was on, on the you know, doorstep of an English uh, to find out, you know, this is what brought him here to see if maybe I had lost the pig and, uh, and others. And I was impressed that he was canvassing, you know, the whole area to find us out. I said, John, um, when, did this, when did this happen? And he said, it was about a month ago, a month ago that this happened. And, and I was like, you know, John, if I were you, I mean, you've done due, due diligence here, and nobody has claimed this pig. If I were you, I'd be having bacon tomorrow morning. <laughs> but that was not good enough for John Stolzfus. You know what he did? He went around and he set up, he like put written notices on all the different supermarkets in the area. I imagine it said, lose a pig, you know? <laughs> I, I, I don't know what he said on it, but he, he put up notices to try to find out who owned this pig. And as and at a certain point in the conversation, I just looked at him, and I said, John, you are more righteous than I. So that's an important phrase, important concept for us as we read our passage this morning. We're reading through the letter of Romans, and we have come to chapter 2, the second half of chapter 2. And it's good for us, for us to place ourselves in this because the Apostle Paul, who is expounding on the gospel is making these arguments that are kind of long and they run across chapters. So it's good for us to place ourselves when we're reading a passage, right? And we're reading the second half of, of chapter two. And in that outline that we handed out for you, if you, if you got that with the journals uh, that we gave you, I was uh, making the case that the first four chapters of the, of the letter to the Romans are all about God's justice. It's about how God is righteous, his righteousness is revealed. And he actually is faithful to his promises to Israel and through Israel to the world. So that it's, a, it's kind of justifying God, talking about God's righteousness and justice. And in chapter 2, the apostle is explaining why God is just in passing judgment. First on all people, then also on his chosen people, the Jews. So chapter 2, 
is divided up really into two halves. And last week we got a great message on the first half where, where God is, God's justice is uh, expressed in, in judging all people. And now in verse 17, we're going to be starting to talk about his chosen people. You say, well, how do you know this? Well, Paul tells us in kind of directly. He gives us a direct address. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Oh, you man, oh man, whoever you are. And then he addresses, oh man, whoever you are, and all the nations, right? Anybody, that is the Gentiles. Then in verse 17, as we'll see when, when we read in a moment, he says, but if, you're, if you call yourself a Jew, and then goes on and gives us, gives us that address. So you see what we have here is first the Gentiles, then the Jews. We have a, a kind of interaction here uh, between those who are on the outside, outsiders, and the insiders. Okay, so let's keep that in mind because it's all about who's really righteous. The outsiders, the insiders, who's righteous. Okay, let's listen. James, if you would read to us, if we, and if you could stand with me, we're going to be reading Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. Romans 2, 17 to 29. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, James. Okay. So here we are, talking about insiders and outsiders. And for us to enter into the passage in the way I think that we should this morning, um, we need to understand that, first of all, they were like us. The people that he's talking to are like us. They're, they were insiders, you know, like now we're insiders. And this is one of the places that we get in the New Testament, the New Testament theology, that before Christ came, there were people who knew God. There were, there were members of Israel, there were Jews who were saved. Right? Because there are people who know God and, and have his, 
um, have his purposes in mind. And you can see this in, in the way that Paul describes them. I don't think he's being facetious there and saying, you're the lights, you know? And this is part of our theology to understand even before Christ came, the Holy Spirit would regenerate people in their hearts. There were people who were saved. Now, some things are different now with the coming of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Some things are the same. And we understand that people had regenerate hearts even before Christ came. So that's why, for example, in the New Testament, in, in the Gospels, when uh, Jesus is having a conversation with the Pharisee and Nicodemus, and he's talking to Nicodemus, and he's saying, you know, you really need to be born again. You really need to be reborn in your heart. And Nicodemus says, well, I don't know, what are you talking about? And Jesus is surprised, and he says, wait, you're a great teacher in Israel, and you don't know this? Implying that if you were going to be a teacher in Israel, this is something you should understand, right? That there is a new birth that has to take place for you to know God right? So we understand that they were like us in that God brought people in. He was regenerating their hearts. And when Jesus Christ showed up, those people would say, ah, yes, this is the one who justifies me. This is the one in whom I've been putting my trust. And he is the one now that justifies. They look forward to the Messiah. When he came, they would recognize him. When he showed up, he would, he, uh, they would say, this is the one. Okay, so they were like us, and also we are like them, okay? We're like them. So we need to hear this passage as insiders. Paul is writing to the insiders, and we're, we're like them too. You know, for, for our purposes this morning, we're, we're Jews. I want you to think of yourself as Jewish this morning, right? Because you look, for example, verse 19, what does he say to the insiders? You're a light to the nation. I don't think Paul's being sarcastic there. He's, he's saying to the Jews, you really are the light, right? You're supposed to be the light to, to all peoples, right? Well, doesn't that sound like something the New Testament says to us, right? What are we? Aren't we the lights of the world, right? So we're like them. They're like us. And so I want, to, I want you to think this morning as if, you're in this passage being spoken to as the insiders, okay? Because that's what we are. God has brought us into the people of God, and now we're the people who are on the inside. Hmm? So it's like we're Jewish. Now, I don't know, there might be a few of you here who are Jewish this morning. Probably not. Most of us are Goya. Most of us are Gentiles, right? I am almost legitimate. I, I am almost a Jew because my grandmother on my father's side was Jewish. And so I think that makes him Jewish. So I'm almost a Jew. <laughs> not quite, not really authentic. But uh, all of us this morning, I want us to think, you know, we're Jews, okay? You're, for the purposes this morning, you're Jews, all right? And so when you read this, you know, about circumcision, right? Verse 25, verse 27, he says, because you know, you think you're, you're right with God because you have circumcision. And there's debate about, you know, what first, gen, first century Jews thought made them right with God. It was, was it circumcision or was it moral works of the law? But it's clear in this passage, it's both. There's this parallel argument that he's making in, the, uh, in these two sections of, of our passage. And, and it's moral works of the law and circumcision. So when we hear that, 
What's the mark that makes us, you know, marks us as a people of God? We would think baptism, right? We don't have circumcision, but we have baptism. So Paul would, Paul would be saying to us, you know, you have baptism. You're baptized, so you think that you're in. But is that really going to do it for you? Right? That's what he's asking. And it's important for us to think as insiders, okay? Because there's a syndrome that attaches itself to insiders. Whenever you're on the inside, this is, this is always a temptation. This is always something that happens. It's called self-righteousness. Because you're on the inside, you tend to start thinking, I'm better, and that's what Paul is really, uh, one of the things he's attacking here. He's going against this syndrome that is so quick, it's so easy to happen if you're an insider. So let's look at his accusations here. He says, if you're an insider, here are some things I want you to think about. And he lists here at least three things. that he says, you preach against these things. You say you stand against these things. But are you doing them or are you enabling them in some way? Right? And they, they might seem like they're easy to dismiss. Like if you're an upstanding Jew and he goes through these things, are you stealing? No. Are you committing adultery? No. Are you robbing temples? Well, certainly not. You know, if you're an upstanding Jew, you're not even going to be seen in another temple. You know, he uses temple in the plural. So we're thinking like pagan temples. You're not going to be there. Right? So, no. Do you break the law? No. You know, and a first century Jew would consider the law eminently doable. If you said, do you follow the law? Do you fulfill the law to a first century Jew? They would say, yeah, do what the, do what the law says. But Paul is trying to make the argument and saying, actually, no, you don't. Right? He's pretty clear here. Uh, verse 23, you break the law. And that's why the outsiders blaspheme God, because you break the law. Verse 27, explicitly, you break the law. Yes, you do. Now, you might be dismissive here and say, Paul, this is not very convicting. <laughs> but you know what? I, I tend to argue backwards. I assume that Paul is making an effective argument to his audience. Um, and we maybe don't get all of the details. And then I reason backwards from there, right? So I would say Paul's, a, you know, I, he's a Jew. <laughs> I think he knows who he's talking to. I think he's probably pretty effective in what he's saying here. He's a Pharisee of Pharisees, right? So I think he's probably making his point pretty well, even if we can't quite feel the force of it. Let's look at these, at these uh, accusations, for example. Verse 21, stealing. Was there stealing going on that this might bring conviction to some some people who are hearing him, some of the insiders there. And I have one uh, commentator that I respect said there, there, there actually were some complaints about stealing. So maybe there was, I don't know. Uh, it, it's hard for us to tell exactly what's going on. But it could also mean when he says, are you stealing? He could mean, are you not respecting others' property in some way? Because the righteousness of the kingdom, you know, we want to know the real righteousness of the kingdom is that we would endeavor to preserve others' property and to help others further their own wealth. 
That's real righteousness of the kingdom. That's real kingdom righteousness, that we would look at others, and we would, we would not only help them respect their properties, make sure their property is preserved, but also help them to be expanding and further their wealth. So Paul might say today, are we stealing in the sense of endorsing policies that keep the poor poor? Are we maybe even without even thinking of it? Are we, are we endorsing policy or, or doing things that, that you know, in, instead of helping a poor person, keeping a poor in a poor state? You know, something that he might be asking us uh, to think about, to be convicting. Or on a personal level, you know, we're entering the tax season, right? What, are, what, are, what is your attitude toward paying taxes? Let me have a show of hands here. How many of you here are filling out your taxes now with the attitude, I want the government to get its due share of my money? What is this show of hands? Okay, I'm not alone then, I guess. I don't fill out my taxes that way. But you know, the taxes that we pay are the way in which we live together with other people in community, right? Paul is asking us to think about our attitude towards money. Verse 22, adultery. Again, we don't have the details here, but I think, you know, it's about breaking the marriage covenant, right? Paul might be asking us collectively, are we allowing sexual predation in the church? Are we doing that? You know, and I'm afraid we have to look at the church at large we don't have a great record, right? We think on, on the Roman Catholic side of the awful, uh, horrendous uh, scandals about um, abuse of children. But we don't even have to look at the Roman Catholic side, do we? We can look on the Protestant side and see scandals on the Protestant side where, where there was not proper accountability for those in power and uh, situations where people were taken advantage of and where the, where the marriage covenant was broken, you know? You who are, you know, we're supposed to be against adultery, but is this going on as insiders? Or on a personal level, right? I think Jesus Christ would ask us each individually, personally. Jesus Christ and Job, Old Testament, New Testament, would ask us, are you guarding your eyes? Are you being faithful in your eyes to the marriage covenant? Are you upholding that that way? Or are you some you know, in a way, committing adultery there. Verse 22, do you abhor idolatry, but at the same time, are you robbing temples? And this might be the, the, the strangest one to tr try to understand in their day. Um, there, there were artifacts, there were kind of precious metals that uh, Jews would use and so sometimes these came actually from pagan temples. People would go in and take these out of pagan temples, and then Jews would buy them. So Paul could be asking them, are you gaining, are you profiting from the wealth of idols? You know, are, are you ending up profiting from somehow this other idolatry that's going on? Could be saying that. Or, you know, this term is used, could mean, are you in some way being sacrilegious? Are you committing sacrilege? This is what, uh, for example, the way the term is used in Acts 19, where Paul 
is there with the clerk at Ephesus, and the, and the clerk at Ephesus is defending Paul, and he says, this guy hasn't committed sacrilege. He, it's the same term here that's used. He hasn't, you know, he hasn't been doing that. So are we being sacrilegious in some way? That is, we who, who want to worship the true God, are we in some way putting, putting something before God in our hearts? I would, I would have to say I do. So what he's trying to bring out here is even the insiders are breaking the law. Even the insiders are falling short of, of what they're hoping to uphold, of the way in which God is bringing truth into the world. And we say, we're, we're for that. Yet even so, <clears throat> we're falling short of that truth. So we, are, we end up being in the same situation. It's kind of like this um, congressional candidate I heard in Texas. <clears throat> he said, he was making a speech about his opponent. And he was talking, he's saying, that low-down scoundrel, he said, that low-down scoundrel, he deserves to be kicked to death by a jackass. And then he said, and I'm just the one to do it. <laughs> yeah, so even the insiders, um, what they're preaching against can be brought back on them. I, that's, that's where the apostle is trying to, to bring us. So that, friends... That insider syndrome that, that, is, that clings so closely, that thing that is so easy for insiders to fall into, that thing called self-righteousness would not be found in our breast. And so there's a test. This gives us a test of whether we have, because it's very hard to know sometimes our own hearts, right? But this gives us a test that we can use on ourselves to say, have I fallen into that syndrome? Am I one who looks down on others because of my insider status? And here's the question. Do I ever say to someone else, you are more righteous than I? Does that ever happen in you? Now, God gives us an easy test sometimes in our churches. I tell you, this church, it's easy. I, I have a number of times where I can look around at different people and they are examples to me. And I could look at this person and say, you know, as a husband, he's doing a better job than me. Or I look at someone and, and I say, she is more righteous than I. Just like, just like Judah said of, of his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Only, you know, I'm not in the same situation as that. But, um, you know, to recognize there is something more righteous here going on. In, in, his, in his, one of his moments of clarity, she is more righteous. Or... Or as Saul, in one of his few moments of clarity, said about David, he is more righteous than I. Right? Do you ever say that? I know that I do. You know, uh, many of you know I like to go out and play Frisbee. Sometimes uh, Ben is out there joining us. And the reason uh, we have this Frisbee game on, on Sunday afternoons, the reason why I like it so much, is because there's like real-life drama that goes on in the field. Uh, it's, it's a game. It's, it's more than a game, isn't it? There's a lot of stuff that goes on there. I'll tell you one thing that goes on. Like when you are really struggling to make a point and you're huffing and puffing and you've worked really hard and then someone on your team drops the Frisbee, okay, there's a real temptation to frustration there. Maybe even expressing frustration to that person. You know, and I, I can really get into the game. And so I might be expressing frustration to that person. But 
Let me tell you, there's a guy who comes out to play there. His name is Wade Pegum. And Wade takes a completely different tact, okay? He puts on sunglasses. This is what Wade is like out on a Frisbee field. <laughs> and when somebody drops a Frisbee on his team, you know what he says? He goes like this. This is Wade. It's all good. And, you know, it's not like me. I might also be dropping the Frisbee and getting mad at other people, but Wade's a very good player. So when he says something like that, when he says, ah, oh, don't worry about it, you know, yeah, I know we've been struggling to try, but it's all good. This is Wade. It's all good. I'll tell you, it changes the whole atmosphere of the Frisbee game. It changes the whole field. And I, I, there have been uh, more than once I've looked at, at him, looking at Wade, and I'm like, he is more righteous than I. <laughs> because he can just uh, change the whole, the whole game that way. So you might have examples like that in this church, do you? Can you think of them? Where you're looking at people and you're like, you know what? They're doing better than I am. They are more righteous than I am. That's a good test. But you want to know the real test? The real test is can you ever look at a non-believer and say that? Do you ever look at someone on the outside? Do you ever look on a non-believer and say, you know what? That person has something at this level in this area that I do not have. And that's an example for me. Because if you never say that, then there's something wrong. Then there's something wrong. Now, you say, wait a second, hold on, though. Aren't we supposed to be showing the righteousness of God, the righteousness of Christ? Aren't we supposed to be better? Aren't we supposed to be the light of the world? So aren't, aren't we supposed to be kind of morally higher? Well, yeah, but you never know where people are. You, know? you never actually know who is doing better or worse based on what's going on in people's lives because you never actually know people's lives. You never know what they've dealt with in their past. You never know where they're starting from. You never know what they've had to deal with, maybe injustice or abuse in their past, or what they're recovering from, what they're dealing with, what they're handling with. So you can never actually be the judge of someone else. Only one person can do that. You know what it's like? It's like running track. How many of you like ran track in high school or college? Okay, good, a number of you. Okay, I did, I was, I was kind of quick. I was always fascinated I, I would be into the sprints, you know, the short races. When you have these short races, like you start on that track, you know, that track right behind the school, okay? That's a quarter mile. So you run four of those, you run a mile. But if you're running a fast, you know, race, like a quarter mile race, okay? I, I was always fascinated because when you, when you line up for that race, people started at all different places, Right, the insider guy on the inside track, because I guess he had to run less, he started way back. And the guy on the outside track started, you know, way forward. And then poof, the gun went off. And you could never tell who was actually winning, right? You can't tell who's winning in that race. But there's one time that you can tell who's winning. When is that? At the finish line. 
Behold, friends, this is like the kingdom of heaven. Yeah? We have no idea, actually, how people are doing. Who's faster? Who's running? Who's winning? And we won't know until the end when my God judges the secrets of men's hearts in Christ Jesus. Yeah? That's when we find out. So in the meantime, we can't tell. We could never tell how somebody is doing. Only God can. Most we can do is look at an action and say, well, that's good, or that's not good, and we should do that. But we should never become someone else's judge. We can't. I know I was, I was watching a, um, a guy, and, and uh, this was a speaker who was a, non, a non-Christian speaker, and I was just kind of watching this guy speak recently, and I said, you know what? He's better than I am. Because I was looking at him, and this guy had just such compassion for the people he was speaking to. And I was like, boy, that's, that's really something better than what I have. You know? This was a non-believer speaking this. Now, is that an experience that you ever have? Have you ever said that about a non-believer in your life? If you haven't, it said you have likely slid into this insider syndrome that we call self-righteousness. All right. But the, but the wonderful thing about the way Paul talks about this is, is that he says there is something that's going on on the inside. What, what, what really is happening on those with whom Christ is working is that they are becoming inward Jews. Right? They're, verse 29, they're circumcised in their heart. What is he talking about? People who are circumcised in their heart. He's talking about converted Gentiles in his setting. Right? These are people, Gentiles, who have come to Christ in this time. And he calls them, verse 29, an inward Jew. They're, they're not circumcised, but yet they're obeying the righteousness within the law. They're fulfilling the law. A true Jew, if you will. Okay? It's the same way Paul talks, for example, in Galatians, Galatians 6. Where he says, if you obey this law of the new creation, then you're the Israel of God. You're the true Israel of God. Right? That's the way he's talking here. So this is Paul's way. Again, these th- three themes are never quite absent of bringing Jews and Gentiles to live together because he's showing the Jews that, you know, if you're going to be the true Israel of God, it's a matter of the circumcision of your heart. And that circumcision of the heart is what's so great about living on the inside. If you're here this morning and you're saying, I don't feel like I'm on the inside. I'm not, uh, I don't know about this religion stuff or this Christianity thing. This is, this is what it is. This is what's so great about being on the inside, about coming on the inside. Is that when you're circumcised in heart, here's what I know. I may not be as righteous as John Stolzfus today, but I will be because I'm being changed. I'm being changed, and these examples of righteousness are where I am headed to. And I can see this because of this circumcision in my heart that Christ has done. And Christ, because he has fulfilled my righteousness, he allows me to be honest with myself. Right? You wonder how change actually happens. The first step, friends, is to be able to say, that's righteous and I'm not. 
That's the first step. And that's the circumcision of our hearts that happens by the Holy Spirit. When Christ fulfills our righteousness, and he's the one person, by the way, Jesus Christ, the one person who could never look at anyone else and say, you are more righteous than I. (laughs) Because there was no one else. But he gives us his righteousness so that we can relax, so we can actually say, you know what? I can be honest with myself. There are ways in which I fall short. and I can look at that person and say, yeah, that's where I need to be. That's better. That's better. And that's the first step to change that happens in our lives. This is all made possible by Jesus Christ. He's the one who allows us to be honest with ourselves. He's the one that allows us to be circumcised in our hearts. And this is his table. So let's come to 